Hi, this is Bala Chaudhry from DePaul University. You're listening to 1590 WCGO, Chicago's Smart Talk. The Mike Novak Show starts in 3, 2, 1. Live from a cul-de-sac somewhere in Evanston, Illinois, it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. After 20 years, still Chicago's only deep green gardening and environment program. Heard every Saturday morning on 1590 WCGO. Chicago's Smart Talk. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. They're sometimes called the odd couple. If only because the word aberrant doesn't fit in the logo. Here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Half forest, no wetlands, well, good planets are in demand. Right. Right. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is a beautiful Sunday morning here in sunny Evanston, Illinois. And this is Peggy Malecki. Mike Novak has got the weekend off, but we might be hearing from him this morning. And I want to welcome to the studio our special guest and my co-host this morning, Lisa Hilgenberg. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Peggy. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, great to see you. It's such a beautiful day in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. I'm glad to be here to talk uh, late summer uh, veg issues, <laughs> problems. We've got such a cool lineup today. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and Ariana's here this morning, too. That I am. Did you, did you get the uh, Wi-Fi password? I did. Let's uh, cross our fingers that it works. Hope that Mac <laughs> keeps working over there. Exactly. <laughs> well, Mariana's going to be working the Twitter machine and the Facebook machine and checking for your tweets. So be sure to tweet us at Mike. No. Eh? What? Mike eh? now. At Mike now. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. Good morning. Um, so we got a great show lined up this morning. We've, as Lisa said, there's so much happening here. It's late summer. Gardens are still growing strong, although some of them have some issues that we're going to talk about. And we're joining Lisa is going to be Chris Beiser from the Chicago Botanic Gardens, um, because it's not just tomatoes and peppers. It's also going to be ornamentals and our woody plants as well, our trees and our yeah. shrubs that have some issues. Chris Beiser is so knowledgeable. He's mm-hmm. a member of our plant health care team, and he is the one who troubleshoots and diagnoses uh, lots of the problems that we're having Um uh, flood-related and, and otherwise. So it's going to be great to have him on. Yeah. And then in the first hour, before we start talking gardening, our special guest is Michelle Hickey from the Resiliency Institute out in Naperville. And they're working on solving food security issues and community resiliency issues, not just in the city, but especially focused on the suburbs and uh, DuPage County, Kendall County, and that whole area out there. Yeah, permaculture is something that a lot of people are talking about, and I'm anxious to hear just what her definition of the, her project mm-hmm. is and, and what inspires her, what she's looked at um, around the country for um, sort of a, um, a model for her project. It'll be interesting to talk with Michelle. Yeah, because they're getting into you know, edible food forests that they're putting in the community, so that's, that's going to be really interesting. Um, but I had a question for you. So you're at the gardens all the time. Regenstein Fruit and Vegetable Garden, you're the horticulturalist. When you aren't working, 
Do you go anywhere near plants? I go only near plants. So um, it's it's a pursuit, uh, a weekend pursuit after work. Um, I come home and garden. I always just justify it by saying I'm already kind of in my dirty <laughs> clothes, so I may as well just keep on gardening. Um, but yeah, I I I garden or look at plants and gardens um, all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, every waking hour. Yeah, and you're one of the judges for the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards competition. I am looking forward to that. Yeah, so you uh, said you're going out and doing some judging today. I'm going to look at a few gardens in Chicagoland. Thanks mm-hmm. for the entries, and um, we, I think. You know, I can't wait to see the creativity and and the um, tenacity of Chicagoland gardeners. Yeah. Uh, it'll be fun to see. And uh, I think you're celebrating the um, awards later in September. Yeah, in September 24th, we've mm-hmm. got the awards planned. But you and several of the other judges this week, next week, will be going around all over the city, the different wards. I think you've got a couple community gardens that you're judging as well. I do, um, all mostly on the north side, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll look at a couple of them. Um, I do know one of the growers, but um, we'll keep things very diplomatic, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Well, it's a small community. It is a small community, hopefully mm-hmm. growing, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, I don't really know what to expect, so I'm anxious. I'm going to spend the afternoon driving from site to site, mm-hmm. and I uh, have all my judging forms in the car, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And then Ariana. Yes, ma'am. What are you doing this weekend? You said you saw a horror movie last night, and you're still looking kind of horrified from the whole thing. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Kept waking up and hearing things that weren't really there, and it's quite the experience. <laughs> Hopefully tonight will be you better. should have gone to Lollapalooza instead last I really should have. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so like um We've got a great lineup this morning, and Lisa and I are just really excited to to talk about some of the plant problems. So get ready to call us at 847-475-1590 in the first hour. We're going to talk tomatoes especially. If you go to the blog on www.mikenovak.net, there's a couple tomato pictures up there. We're going to talk peppers, squash. Uh, You can also tweet us. Ariana is working on the Twitter machine right there, and you can get to us at... Uh, Facebook as well. I don't think you're going to want to email Mike this morning, though, because he's not going to be responding. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to head to a break. When we come back, we're going to be live with Michelle Hickey from the Resiliency Institute on the Mike Novak Show on 1590 WCGO. walked into a hair salon and been overwhelmed by the smell of chemicals? Well, that's never going to happen at Organic Roots Eco Salon. They use only the safest, most natural professional hair products available to make sure you get great color results that last and won't harm the environment or you. Their salon products and services are free from ammonia, formaldehyde, and other toxins typically found in hair color perms and keratin smoothing treatments. Organic Roots also offers a complete menu of safe straightening treatments, including the non-toxic Magic Sleek and Cezanne keratin smoothing products that let you shampoo the same day. They even repurpose hair clippings, recycle product containers, and use LED lighting. Now that's green. Walk into 21st Century Hair Care for women and men at Organic Roots Eco Salon, 3417 Dempster in Skokie. Book your appointment at OrganicRootsEcoSalon.com or call 847-423-2653. Health and beauty, you no longer have to sacrifice one for the other. 
Now is the time to get your lawn in shape. That's right. Late summer, early fall is the time to make your lawn beautiful and sustainable. Talk to Logic Lawn Care, a company that uses a holistic approach. It's not just about putting down harmful products. It's about process. Logic also works with schools, park districts, and municipalities across Chicagoland to manage large turf areas. Get a free estimate. Go to LogicLawnCare.com or call 847-421-6500. Join Crate Free Illinois on Friday, August 25th for a discussion about factory farms at Nana Organic Restaurant in the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. Mike Novak will moderate a panel about the threat of factory farms in Illinois. Noted sustainability experts will be there, including Mark Ayers, Illinois Director for the Humane Society, which is launching its Illinois Agriculture Advisory Council. That's August 25th at Nana, 3267 South Halstead Street in Chicago. It starts at noon and it's free. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Mike has got the weekend off, so we are live in studio today with our special guest, Lisa Hilgenberg, horticulturalist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Hello, hello. And Ariana tweeting in the corner. Yep, yep. And Ben spinning the dials. Hello. Hey, (laughs) thanks so much, Ben. So, great show this morning, and we are going to go live with our first guest. She is Michelle Hickey, the vice president and a co-founder of the Resiliency Institute, a Naperville-based organization dedicated to transforming our suburbs into what they call resilient communities that incorporate permaculture practices to create food security. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Hi, Michelle. Hi. So, what is resiliency? Define resiliency. Oh, well, resiliency, how we're defining it for communities is basically mm-hmm. that we're able to take care of our own needs, and should anything ever happen, we can bounce back from it, right? So being resilient really means to thrive through adversity. Uh-huh. Uh, so are we set up as communities to be able to withstand any kind of disaster that happens to us? And even being resilient in our own lives, right? Um, you know, are, are our lifestyles resilient? Are yeah. we able to take care of our own needs? Um, or are we very dependent on other people, outside sources? And what happens if those outside sources are not available? Mm-hmm. So you are one of the co-founders of the Resiliency Institute out in Naperville. And your uh, co- other co-founder, Jody Trendler, the two of you run the Institute. So what are some of your missions? Tell us a little bit about what all you guys are doing out in the suburbs and and how you got started with all this. Right. Well, our goal was really to help people transform their lawn into edible forest <laughs> gardens. I mean, that was mm-hmm. really one of our main things is we would just be, you know, we look at the suburbs and we're just like, it's so wasteful. Yeah. You know, there's so much waste going on in suburbs. How can we redesign the suburbs to be more... Um, productive, more resilient, you know, where we're, we become producers rather than consumers. You know, that was a big thing is to become a producer and not so much be a consumer. Uh, how can we utilize all of this green space that we're using so many resources for, you know, think of the, all the equipment that you have to take care of a lawn and all the things that go on a lawn. 
and instead using that to produce food to feed your family. Um, so that was a big push for us was to try to do that. And then we teach classes at the Resiliency Institute. We try to educate people so that mm-hmm. they can make these transformations for themselves. So, you know, we teach them how they can transform their lawn into an edible forest garden with our permaculture forest gardener class. We teach them how to forage, um, you know, to go out and, and forage in natural areas mm-hmm. where they can harvest weeds and things. And then we teach them herbalism so they can take care of themselves holistically so they can prevent illnesses and things from happening to them. Um, yeah, we teach yeah. these different classes, and then we um, take the proceeds from those classes after we pay all of our instructors to build food security projects. Okay, so I look at a suburb like Naperville or, or pretty much any of our suburbs, which are, you know, our suburbs are very much like a lot of the other suburbs out there. And as you said, it's just a sea of Chemlon and Scott's products. and <laughs> Right. And so, Lisa, you were going to jump in here. Just. Yeah, and just making that trans uh, transformation into um, a completely different aesthetic, which is growing food in your front lawn. Overcoming some of the objections um, to that is something certainly that you've probably addressed. Just the sort of political nature and the um, acceptance within communities, I'm sure um, those are issues that come up every day. Well, you know, actually not so much. Uh, you'd be surprised because so I've converted my entire yard front and back into an edible forest garden, and I've had nothing but positive responses. Um, That's now, wonderful. And, you know, I think it's, um, uh, I think a place to start in all of this is just for us to define what permaculture means. We've he- sure. heard what resiliency means, and um, I think a lot of people connotate uh, permaculture with something that's permanent, something that's built into an existing mm-hmm. landscape. And we're talking about really edible landscaping and sort of a front yard kitchen garden um, approach to this. And so can you connect those two for me, uh, edible yes. landscaping yes. to permaculture? So we're not talking edible landscaping. We're talking about edible forest gardens. So we are talking about permanent agriculture. Permaculture is permanent agriculture. Yeah. So it's designed, it mimics a woodland, a natural woodland. So when you think of, you know, walking through the forest, you think how resilient a forest is, right? It mm-hmm. takes care of itself. It's self-managing. It's self-maintaining. And it grows more abundant over time. So that's what we use as our design model. Uh, and, and so we're designing using perennial woody plants, doing fruit trees, nut trees, fruit and nut shrubs, herbs, perennial, you know, herbaceous layer, um, ground covers, things like strawberries, right, and creeping thyme. And mm-hmm. um, so edible ground covers, asparagus, rhubarb is in there, of course, but we also are using currants and honeyberries, uh, New Jersey teas to fix nitrogen. So we also not just put edibles in there, but we're putting in dynamic nutrient accumulators, you know, plants that are going to provide nitrogen and all the other minerals that are necessary so the whole area can flourish. And then insect, you know, things for pollinators, Mm -hmm. things for them to eat and things for them to, um, you know, lay their eggs on. Yeah, I I think before we start getting into a lot of the stuff that you're doing in Naperville, a, a lot of the listeners might not be totally familiar with permaculture or could have some different views of it. I know I've taken a couple of short workshops on it, but there's there's huge courses. Um, it goes off of some pretty ancient 
techniques of just looking at the land, looking at nature, kind of mimicking that. But uh, I know in the 70s, there was a couple of Australians, David Holmgren and Bill Mollison, that kind of formalized it. And, Correct. And um, came up with the term permaculture that's that's more or less a contraction, as you said, Lisa, of, of permanent culture or permanent agriculture, um, and kind of built a whole program around that. And I know you've been trained at, uh, what, is it Midwest Permaculture you're at? With Correct. Bill Wilson? Yes. So, yes. so when you're learning permaculture, it's it's not as you said, just food gardening and learning how to plant tomatoes. What what all is in permaculture that you're learning to get certified? So permaculture is really um, kind of this all inclusive term because it's a design philosophy. Mm-hmm. It it's not a specific method of design, right? It's kind of it takes all these different things and puts them all together. So. It's a way, it's a lens by which we look through, we look and see the world. It's grounded in ethics of care for the earth, care for people, and fair share. So every design that we create, whether it be for a landscape, whether it be for a lifestyle, a community, a business, we're always ensuring that it's guided by those ethics. And then there are also 12 principles, which that's what Dave Holmgren was big with creating these 12 principles, things like obtain a yield, um, observe and and, and interact, um, collect or use natural resources, uh, things like that, catch and store energy. So all of our designs have to use that, but it doesn't mean specifically landscapes. It can be used to model anything. And what is interesting is what they discovered was, you know, initially it was for landscape. It was to change our, our wasteful agricultural system, which is always tilling and the soil gets worse over time and we're losing all of our nutrients right into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was how do we replace that way of agriculture with something more permanent? And we replaced corn and soybeans with chestnuts instead. Um, so that's kind of how they started. But then they realized in order to have a permanent agriculture, you really needed a permanent culture. Because mm-hmm. the people had to stick around, and they had to really change their lifestyles to adjust for this new way of eating, for this new way of processing, and that it all had to be done in community. And that means people had to be working together and doing things together and sharing things. Um, you know, we're very independent, right, in our neighborhoods. How many neighbors even know each other anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is you really can't have that segregation. You can't have that kind of, I'm just all by myself living in my house. Nobody touched my stuff. <laughs> you know, it's more like, let's share. Let's have a tool share, you know, where not everybody has to have all the tools. We just have a garage here and everybody from the neighborhood shares the tools that are in this garage, you know, so it's more about making um, wiser use of our resources. And I know you've got a lot of background in renewable energy. You used to be with uh, Illinois Solar Energy Association. And yes, and then I ran the Naperville Renewable Energy Program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and how- so that's a part of it. So that's all a part of it because that's making use of renewable resources, right? Mm-hmm. So when we design a landscape, we're saying, how can we make use of that rainwater that's coming down? So, okay, let's maximize the roof, um, you know, where we would drain that water into a cistern or let's make swales to catch all that water. Let's make our own energy. Um, you know, let's get solar panels up on our roofs um, and do solar thermal to heat our water <clears throat> because we don't want to be dependent 
upon outside resources because that's not resilient. Um, it's very important for us to be able to make our own. And if that should go out, well, we have a wood stove mm-hmm. for backup, you know, or a rocket stove, as we do it in permaculture, um, for backup. So it's important to have two to three ways of accessing all of these different things that you need in your life to thrive. The systematic approach is um, inspiring. Just thinking about, you know, the, the basis for organic gardening is just that a whole system approach to, um, you know, uh, uh, rainwater and uh, rainwater harvesting, I should say, and use and storage and um, uh, the lack of synthetics and chemicals. And it seems like um, you're probably following organic principles um, well within the um, permaculture definition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the word systems is critical. You know, yeah. you said that. Because what we say is it's systems design. Mm-hmm. It's right. really designing systems um, so that everything is a resource for the other. So waste becomes a resource, right? right. And we close all of those loops and everything. And we absolutely um, use everything in nature. So it means we're not bringing in outside chemicals or outside things. Um, it doesn't mean we don't get support. So if we wanted to use some seaweed to help our one of our plants, you know, we might get that from some outside source um, or some compost tea. But, um, you know, we try to have everything created on site. And so do you maintain these gardens as well, or do you empower the homeowners um, through education to maintain them uh, themselves? It's such a lifelong pursuit to be able to care for such a wide range of plant material. Nut trees and fruit trees and things. I mean, those are um, those are issues. You know, um, that are there's a lot to learn. Isn't there's there? a lot we to learn. <laughs> <laughs> we start. We, you know, we work to empower people to do this for themselves, mm-hmm. and we, you know, say yes. This is going to be a long term process, just like a forest. Building a forest is a long term process. Your education is a long term process. Um, we usually try to start people not with their whole lawn, but rather with a fruit tree guild. So we say, let's just focus on one small thing, one fruit tree guild. You know, so you take one fruit tree and 15 feet by 15 feet is your area. And let's, I'm going to teach you all the different plants that you can choose from to put into your fruit tree guild. And here are some sample designs. So that's kind of what we do to really get people going and get people started. Um, and people have come back and brought us pictures, you know, look mm-hmm. at our pictures. Yeah. And, and that's really empowering to them because it's just like when you teach any gardener, start with one tomato plant, you know, get to know that tomato plant, practice growing that tomato plant. It's the same thing. Once you have one fruit tree guild mm-hmm. and that is getting going, now you can, you know, move on and maybe expand a little bit. So, Michelle, you're, you're using the word guild, which is a permaculture term. term. Um, what, what does guild mean? So with that one fruit tree, say you're putting in an apple tree, what else would you be putting with that? So a guild is really kind of a cooperation, right? A cooperation of plants. Think of uh, like a mechanics association or something. That's really kind of a guild, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all the different support plants that a fruit tree needs to be the best fruit tree it can be. So it's going to need um, nutrient accumulators, which we tend to use comfrey. We really like comfrey. Uh, and then you also have baptisia, right, so wild blue indigo, mm-hmm. um, and, and then New Jersey tea. So all of those are kind of nutrient accumulators, yarrow, 
um, is a nutrient accumulator. Yarrow is also wonderful because it's great for pollination. Um, and, you know, it's an insect attractant. So we put insect attractants in there. We have uh, food sources for the insects, and then we also have habitat for the insects. Then, of course, we're filling it with food because the number one goal of a fruit tree guild of a forest garden is food. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's our number one goal. So within the fruit tree guild, you're going to be putting currants, maybe a gooseberry or a honeyberry shrub, some asparagus, um, maybe some rhubarb, some strawberries, some herbs, you know, like thyme and echinacea and um, oregano, you know, things like that. So we're mixing it up with food, nutrient accumulators, um, insect attractants, pest deterrents. Oh, and we also always put pretty much garlic. We love to put, you know, perennial garlics and onions in there to um, try to reduce pests from coming into the area. Good companion planting yeah. techniques. It sounds yeah. like sort of a repackaging of some of the um, vocabulary that we've used in, in um, edible landscaping right. and, and in gardening. It's, um, it's very interesting. And if I'm remembering some of my permaculture correctly, you're going to have those kind of in layers as you move out from the tree that, that uh, certain plants will be located at the drip line, for example. Correct, correct. You know, you have to understand what, what are going to be the sun and water and soil mm -hmm. requirements of all those different plants. And that's why it gets complicated, right? Because yep. Okay, M Michelle, we got to take a quick break here. And when we come sure. back, we'll keep talking about permaculture with our guest, Michelle Hickey from the Resiliency Institute on the Mike Novak Show. If you garden in or around Chicago and you don't have a subscription to Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, I'm a little worried about you. That's because you're missing out on not only the garden magazine for our region, but one of the best gardening magazines in the country. Every issue features spectacular photos, as well as articles by noted horticultural authorities, nursery owners, state extension agents, master gardeners, and more. There are columns like Ask the Garden Pros, Regional Reports, and What to Do in the Garden. Of course, there's my column on the inside back page of every issue, but into each life a little rain must fall. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state -state gardening magazines. On newsstands everywhere, but go to chicagolandgardening.com and get a subscription. If you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600. 888-265-3600. Are you ready to make a positive change in the world around you? One that is easy and creates beauty? Make the switch to native plants, natural communities native plants. Enjoy the elegance of nature, the birds, the pollinators, and yes, even monarch butterflies without the excessive maintenance and without pesticides. Natives create food for our pollinators and birds, offset climate change, cleanse water, reduce floodwaters, and they look great. Natural Communities has more than 200 species of affordable woodland, wetland, and prairie plants, as well as shrubs, trees, and seeds native to the Midwest. And now is the time to get those plants established in your yard for a head start next year. Go to naturalcommunities.net. And if you use the magic word NOVAK, N-O-W-A-K, at checkout, you'll get 10% off your purchase until October 1st. Don't just get back to nature. Create it in your own backyard. Go to naturalcommunities.net. Hey, 
ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, get you ripe and don't get a hard one. Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer, all winter. Yes, good morning. It's the Mike Novak Show, and we are live in the studio with our special guest, Lisa Hilgenberg, as well as Ariana. And on the phone with us is Michelle Hickey. She's the vice president and co-founder of the Resiliency Institute in Naperville. And even though we'll be talking tomatoes in the second hour, we are talking food forests, edible gardens, edible forests this hour with Michelle. And before the break, we were starting to talk about um, turning someone's yard into an edible forest and uh, planting guilds and uh, plants that go well together. And one of the things that I was going to comment on, you mentioned comfrey, Michelle, going with a tree. When we were at the gardens a couple weeks ago, uh, Lisa, you also said comfrey was a good companion plant for pawpaws. Did I? Yeah. Um, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The pawpaws are fruiting now. They're just Mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. But, yeah, I think planting um, uh, plants underneath, uh, like you were talking about, the drip line um, is a way to deter pests from... um, uh, climbing up. I think they use that technique in grapefruit groves in the south. Um, and um, there's a there's a holistic orchardist um, on the east coast who uses some of those techniques. Very, um, it's a very capable orchardist, uh, Michael Phillips, and he uses oh, yeah. a lot of companion mm-hmm. planting. Um, uh, so, and and I, I'm sure that this is applicable in sort of that urban orcharding um, uh, trend. Um, lots of people are talking about planting fruit trees on uh, city lots or vacant lots, the dollar lots. So that's sort of a permaculture approach, isn't it, Michelle? Uh, well, we call it a permaculture approach only if it's really designed in a way where it becomes a self-managing, self-maintaining system, where whatever, if they're putting in an orchard, are they putting it in in a way where it can become self-sustaining and it doesn't mm-hmm. rely on people to be going in there and managing it all the time? So, it's, you know, is it self-watering? Is it self-fertilizing? All I was going to ask that. Uh, the irrigation is tricky as you're trying to establish a landscape of small plants. I'm trying to grow a honeyberry, for instance, right now, and they um, came in from the nursery looking fairly ratty, and so we've got them down. We're kind of babying those plants in our production greenhouses at the Botanic Garden, and so I can't um, imagine that everything sort of settles in right away in a in a um, urban situation like that. In the first three years, it's going to need a little bit more, you know, human power right. um, to weed and water and things like mm-hmm. that, but Water is the most critical thing to design correctly when you're creating a landscape. Uh, so how can we capture as much water from the site as possible mm-hmm. so that it is a self-watering site? So we use things like swales, which are ditches on contour, um, and we may connect those swales. And then we make culture beds, you know, so it's basically a berm, but inside that berm we're putting in wood. Mm-hmm. Old wood, new wood, big wood, small yeah. pieces, you know, all that together, because then that wood absorbs the water and acts like a sponge to slowly release water over time. And so <laughs> we've needed that this year, haven't we? It's been <laughs> yeah, a challenging year. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you plant a fruit tree behind that berm, right? So that it can draw from that water. Um, 
so and it's using those contours of the land to make sure that the water is moving and slowly penetrating the soil and getting sinking down deep. Uh, so that is really a critical element in designing mm-hmm. a, a permaculture landscape. Yeah, and with uh, a lot of the climate variability that we're experiencing, I would think it's getting to be more and more important to be using some of these water-saving and other planting techniques. And learning how to, you know, so we use a lot of leaf um, mulch, right? Leaf mm-hmm. mulch and, and wood chips. And so when you have a really um, nourishing layer of compost and uh the leaf mulch and the wood mulch, you know, that's going to hold moisture in. So those roots are always staying nice um, and it can retain the water for a longer period of time than if you were just leaving it bare. Um, So that's another important element because if there is a long time where you don't have the water, that is still going to stay moist for a long time because you've prepared the soil appropriately. Cultivar selection must be very important as well. It is. It is, especially when you're, you know, maybe you're trying to control for size in the suburbs. If you're going to be transforming your suburban lot, right, you, you maybe you can't really plant a standard tree all the time if you don't have a very big lot, right? You know, mm-hmm. might have to go. We really encourage people to use semi-dwarf varieties. Um, so, and then getting cultivars. Also, we teach for resilience, right? You're going to want uh, several different varieties or you graft different varieties on a tree, um, but of different uh, harvest times, right? So getting something that's harvestable early, middle, and late of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, and then getting the right cultivar that's going to work for our climate and going to be productive for you for your soil conditions and water conditions. That's a lot of information. Yeah. So yeah. it is. You really, and, and it's daunting. That's one of the I think uh, deterrence a little bit, right, is that it feels so daunting, which is why we do the Fruit Tree Guild, um, because we're kind of holding people's hands. We're giving them designs. We're giving them these are the plants to start with, you know, so they can get really confident with that one design, mm-hmm. and then then they can feel like I don't have to know so much, right? right and they have right, us right. as a resource. They can always ask us, right? Yeah. So I got a question for you, though. This is a big city. This is a big suburbs. We've got malls. We've got highways everywhere. We've got people in cars rushing to jobs, taking kids to soccer. How do you get people interested in building an edible forest in their yard? How do you get their attention <laughs> and, and make them want to be interested and to do this in, in our busy suburbs? Well, there are different, you know, different triggers for people, right? So different motivators. Uh, for some people, it's that they're really sad by what's happening in, with our climate, you know, that that's really um, daunting to them, what's going on. And so they want to make a difference. So for some people, it's that, you know, that what's going on with our climate, how can I make a difference? Well, we localize your food supply. You know, that's going to help that we're not mm-hmm. having all these transportation miles happening and relying on these distant places for our food. So how do we relocalize our food? Then there's the people who are into local food. You know, those are, we can grab people from uh, local food, people who are just gardeners and wanting to expand their horizon. But to convert your actual lawn into an edible forest garden, that, you know, that's really about people understanding that getting your food from your own home is so much more nourishing 
you know, and that it's right there and you're teaching your children. So oftentimes children can be a leverage point um, where we're educating our children about where their food comes from, encouraging them to, you know, actively engage with soil um, and grow something and watch it grow and nurture it and then be able to harvest it. That's a really important process to learn and experience. Um, so, you know, there's several different points that we can kind of get people to be encouraged okay. by it, but yeah. Now, you, you've got a location out at the Conservation Foundation's McDonald Farm. Are people able to come out there and see some examples, or do you, you've got some other forest gardens that you're putting in as well throughout the uh, Naperville area? Correct. So at our location on the Conservation Foundation's McDonald Farm, we actually have a 130 by 50 edible forest garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, uh, it's basically a, a suburban lot, a small suburban lot. And we have all of the examples of here's how you could potentially convert your suburban lot into an edible forest garden. And then within that, you know, we have hooviculture beds, we have the swales, we have fruit tree guilds. Um, so they're able to see all of that. And then of course it's producing food and we encourage people come out, go and harvest, experience what it's like to harvest. Mm-hmm. Food, you know, from a local garden. And these growing food security gardens, the idea is how do we make some of our public spaces, um, you know, how do we feed people who, who are food insecure? Uh, we have in DuPage County, we have 100,000 food insecure people. So why don't we take some of our public lands that we're paying to be mowed, you know, mm-hmm. um, Instead of paying for them to be mowed, why don't we go and put in a food forest there? And now people have a resource to go to if for food. Yeah. And that and and for healing, you know, they can get medicinal herbs from it too. So we've been doing that. We have a fairy forest garden, which is on a one third acre of DuPage County owned right of way land. And it's right up at Illinois Prairie Path on Route fifty nine and Ferry Road. Illinois fifty nine and Ferry Road. And so that's a wonderful site where people are riding or walking their, you know, walking on that path, and they're able to go and experience that garden and pick a ripe cherry or pick a, a pear or mm-hmm. harvest an asparagus. Um, so it's a wonderful way for them to be nourished by, by a public space. Yeah. Did you need to work with the county, though, to get that set we up? We did. Absolutely. I gave a presentation at DuPage County, and they loved the idea right. of mm-hmm. doing a food forest, and so they were very supportive. And now we're super lucky because we talked to the city of Naperville, and now we're putting in a fruit tree guild right at their front door of City Hall. Wow. Yeah, and then they've also offered a space at their 9-11 memorial and at the community gardens. So, you know, this is going to be a wonderful opportunity for people in the city of Naperville to have larger exposure um, of what permaculture is and how they can get started with a fruit tree guild because they could just model the idea is model what we did, model mm-hmm. what this fruit tree guild is, and you can start there. Yeah. Now, we've we've only got uh, about a minute here till we wrap up. It's been okay. the last couple of segments here. But you have some ways at the Institute that people can learn, anything from one day to multi-week classes. Um, Correct. What, what's coming up? Yeah, so exciting. So we're ready to launch in September. We're going to be launching our 2018 courses where people can sign up for a one day a month 
uh, course to learn permaculture, our permaculture forest gardener series, where they can learn how to do their own suburban permaculture design. Mm-hmm. And then we have our edible wild plant certification course, which has been very popular. Uh, and that's where you get to learn, you know, about 200 edible wild plants, how you can learn to identify them and go and forage for yourself. And then bioregional herbalism series. How can I heal and nourish myself with the plants that are in my neighborhood? Uh, and then, you know, for people who only have time for maybe one afternoon, we are doing these Let's Walk and Learn mm-hmm. classes. Great. So you can Let's Walk and Learn for herbalism. Michelle, yeah. we, we are totally out of time, so people can go to your website, theresiliencyinstitute.net. We also have the links up on mikenovak.net. We've been talking with Michelle Hickey of the Resiliency Institute. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakenings Magazine. And for seven years, we've been helping Chicagoans to lead healthier, happier lives. Each month, our readers enjoy new information about integrative health and wellness, local foods, raising healthy kids and pets, helping our environment, and living a more sustainable life. Get your free copy of Natural Awakenings in more than 1,100 locations throughout city and suburbs, or visit us at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. If you're looking to invest in an electrical car or truck, make sure to hire a state-licensed electrical contract. The installation of that charger will require a permit in most municipalities. So make sure to check the ICC website for a certified contractor at icc.illinois.gov. You can also call DNR Services Unlimited. They've been a licensed electrical contractor since 1992. Visit their website at RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Let's face it, sometimes we overdo physical activity. That's when to give Dr. Bonnie Flaster a call. Dr. Flaster is a chiropractor who treats back and neck pain, but addresses foot, knee, shoulder, and wrist pain too, all with gentle, non-force adjustments. And she'll talk to you about your problems and work with you to devise the best treatment strategy. Find health tips at rivernorthwellness.com. Call Dr. Bonnie Flaster at 312-642-7545 and get back to feeling good. Stay in touch with The Mike Novak Show. Find us on Facebook at The Mike Novak Show. Use the Twitter handle at Mike Now. Send us a photo on Instagram at The Mike Novak Show or write to us, mike at mikenovak.net. Speaking of the website, podcasts and blog posts are available every week at mikenovak.net. And while you're there, sign up for those posts and our newsletter on the homepage. And please support the sponsors who support us. Look for logos and specials at mikenovak.net. And welcome back. This is Peggy Malecki with the Mike Novak Show and Lisa Hilgenberg. And we sent out an SOS, and who called but Mike Novak? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if that uh, that music was a subtle hint. I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, but you guys, you don't need an SOS. I've been I've been listening here in the wilds of Oklahoma. You guys are doing great. Um, you don't need me, so I'm I'm I don't think I'm coming back to Chicago. <laughs> Get yourself right back here. Chicago needs you. The airwaves uh, well, need you. Well, actually, 
I have to get back because, uh, and I don't know, and I don't think you mentioned it on the show yet. We're very excited because uh, on the 27th of August, we're going to be joining Lisa Hilgenberg uh, and the other folks at the Chicago Botanic Garden because we're broadcasting. We think we're going to, you know, we're, we're setting it up right now that we want to broadcast live from your uh, heirloom fest um, and celebrate tomatoes uh, at the Chicago Botanic Garden. So I think we're going to do that whole Sunday thing from 9 to 11, and then that's the second day of your heirloom fest. And you Ariana it found the dinger the... finally. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Yeah, you know what? I realized that the dingers are, I have them, and I didn't leave them with you, so uh, sorry about that. So we were we were trying to ding you, but... <laughs> I was a little um, slow on the uptake. <laughs> that's that, that's okay. Um, it's so, going to be great to have you at the Chicago Botanic Garden that day, Mike and Peggy. That's going to be awesome. Uh, I can't wait to tell you uh, about uh, all the heirlooms we have growing. Um, we're expanding it beyond just tomatoes, so it's a lot of different heirloom plants with great stories and, and interesting fruits, and so it'll be a fun day. It's not just tomatoes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, what's uh, interesting, um, you'll uh, you'll relate to this, Lisa, is, you know, I come to Oklahoma expecting one natural catastrophe, which is uh, fracking earthquakes. And uh, we don't get that, but we get flooded. It's been raining hmm. like crazy in Oklahoma now for th- at least three days. Um, yeah. Yesterday, it was pouring all day long. Some areas got three to six inches. They were expecting another three to six inches in certain areas uh, this morning. Uh, And it's, again, as Rick DeMaio would point out, uh, climate variability uh, is leading to these kinds of events. Um, And and one of the things you don't expect to see in Oklahoma in August is green grass. Um, it's, It's usually brown. At this time of year, but yeah. uh, the the lawns are lush, every and and the trees and the shrubs are green and lush, and it's very unusual at, at this time of year in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's uh, we've had such a problem here as well with the flooding, and it's interesting to note just that plants would recover so differently in in Oklahoma than they do in Chicago. It's likely that they're uh, fairly well-drained, and so um, hopefully will grow on, you know, and not be uh, 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 needing to be pulled out because they die um, like they are in Chicago. So the the differences are really interesting, and it's um, while it's probably sad in the long run, it's nice right now. Golf in Oklahoma, then, is what you're doing, right? <laughs> no, no, I don't have any time for that. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. It's 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 um, it, you know, it's funny. You you should mention that because um, Kathleen's brother here, where we're staying, um, has a, a river birch in the backyard, and it was not looking very good. And so I helped him prune it a little bit. And uh, first of all, he had the lawn growing right up to the base of the tree. And I said, get that out of there. Mm-hmm. I said, mulch, mulch the tree, put some wood chips down there, give the roots of your river birch a chance. You know, don't make them compete with the lawn. And that's that's uh, one of the things. Uh, sure. But the other thing I said, I said to him, so what's the, uh, what's the soil pH here? He says, I don't know. <laughs> and yeah. then I realized I got to do some research on pH for the, uh, actually we're in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, where the uh, the University of Oklahoma is, and because uh, I said, you know, river birches, they kind of like acidic soil, and I'm not sure that uh, 
you've got it here. I don't know if you've got acidic or alkaline, so I've got to do a little research on that, too, to find out whether they actually have it planted uh, under the right circumstances. Because, you know, and you know this, Lisa, uh, the, the nurseries, they'll say anything. Yeah. They, you know, it doesn't, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not busting their chops. Well, actually, I kind of am. Because it doesn't matter what what your pH is, what your area is. I mean, you can buy rhododendrons in Chicago, and a lot of those uh, are not suited to the region. Uh, but, you know, people get sucked in by the beautiful colors, and they buy them, and they plant them in their yards, and they turn into sticks in a couple of years. They rip them out, and what do they do? They buy more rhododendrons. Yeah. Um, and you realize that if if the consumer will buy it, the garden centers will put it in there, and that's a shame. They really should be teaching people uh, about the plants native to the region, and plants, even if they're not native, that will do well in the region. And maybe that's where botanic gardens come in, you know, just to be able to provide lists of, of plant material that will um, adapt to heavy clay soils, or in Oklahoma's case, a, a, a deluges of rain and, and fairly acidic soils. Um, you know, and and it's interesting to um, look at those lists of plants. I mean, we've had um, plants that you wouldn't think um, be particularly sensitive to some of these really um, uh, flooding conditions, mm-hmm. and so it's been um, it's been interesting to watch that. So setting yourself up by choosing the right plant in the right place in the first place yeah. is the whole key. And I think um, flood survival uh, is something mm-hmm. that we obviously have to consider these days, given the amount of rain we've had and. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because uh, some places are going to need to have the flood survival, as you say, and other places, drought survival, what's going right. to survive under drought conditions, depending on where you are and what and what you're dealing with. Right. So those are, and again, we have to get that education. And um, certainly the Botanic Garden does that. But I would say that that needs to spread more to the industry where... Um, they have to put the plants in that are going to survive. Don't, don't, you know, don't tease people with these exotics that are going to last a week in their backyards, um, and prepare for the future. Um, so folks know that this, you want folks to have success. Absolutely. Um, And just because there's one good summer doesn't mean the others are all that way. It could have been an anomaly. So uh, I and 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 before we run out of time here, I know you guys are going to be talking veggies, and you've got Chris on, and I'm really jealous because I want to be there <laughs> uh, to talk tomatoes and some of the problems. I, I don't know if you saw Lisa. We posted a couple of photos. I on can the blog. see those problems right here in your tomato plant. So yes, I can see it. So I hope you guys talk about that a little bit. I know Peggy and I have been talking all summer about issues we've had with our tomatoes. I've had, you know, depending on where my tomato is, it's either perfect or it's or it's had wilt or it's had something, you know, and it's and it's very interesting that within a, a few feet you can have different tomato mm-hmm. issues um, and wonder what's going on with the plants. Um, so I hope uh, you uh, get some phone calls at 847-475-1590. Um, folks call in with their questions. Um, one of those is a, one of our listeners. One of those photos is from one of our listeners. So I hope you help her out. And I know one of them's Peggy's. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you can help Peggy yeah, out with her and, tomato and, problem. And we don't have the ones of, of the plants. You and I both have some similar vascular issues on a couple of plants where the rest of the plant is fine, but a couple of the, of the branches are 
just awful. Yeah, I'm and looking. I think Go we're ahead. experiencing the same thing at the Botanic Garden, really. I yeah. mean, there are all kinds of tomato uh, diseases and issues going on um, given the flood and uh, all the water we've had. So um, it's a slow tomato year, so not to worry. And these plants don't look like you're going to lose them. Um, there are probably a few things we can do. I have a couple at home that I think I am going to lose uh, that have had very little new growth. Um, and I'm a little concerned that as we get into September, uh, when I could get be getting some more mm-hmm. uh, tomato production, they're going to be goners. Yep. Um, well, Ben is giving us the stop talking signal. So <laughs> safe travels home to you, Mike, and we'll talk to you soon. You bet. Take care. Thank you. Captain's log, stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, be more specific. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Of course. Attack of the Killer Asparagus is required reading at Starfleet Academy. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Gwynok of Ninglador. Captain, shields are failing. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. Captain, it seems to be available online at aroundtheblockpress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener, taking all our self-delusions, mishaps, and confusions, and playing them for big laughs. That's not very helpful, Mr. Data. No, it is, however, highly accurate. Welcome to the second hour of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Call us with your questions and comments at 847-475-1590. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Whenever my head starts to hurt, before it goes from bad to feeling worse, I turn off my phone, I get down low, and put my hands in the dirt. And welcome back to this morning's Mike Novak Show. Mike's got the weekend off, but if you were listening, you heard him calling in from Oklahoma right before the break. And live in the studio this morning is Lisa Hilgenberg, horticulturalist extreme from the Chicago Botanic Gardens. Good morning. And you are responsible for the Regenstein Fruit and Vegetable Garden. And and what all does that entail, Lisa? That entails uh, 3.8 acres of edible landscaping and uh, uh, plantings of about 60,000 annual vegetables that are planted in succession over the three seasons um, of our growing season. Um, So we're we're harvesting and uh, something like 6,000 pounds of wow. food every year. Um, so it's an it's really a um, an edible food forest, like we were talking about in <laughs> the first island. hour. On, on an, an island. island. I mean, that's a pretty great office. Yeah. Where, where does all that food go? That food um, is, is harvested and managed by Windy City Harvest, which is um, part of our community gardening program at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And um, it's an apprenticeship program that's through the City Colleges of Chicago that... Uh, uh, engages uh, apprentices in a nine-month certificate that um, uh, they earn and become urban gardeners. And so it's much broader than just that explanation, but it's um, a wonderful program mm-hmm. that has changed hundreds of lives. 
And then the food's donated and goes to food pantries and... Food's donated and is sold at their uh, farmer's markets and supports the huge production numbers that they have at their farmer's markets at 10 or 12 sites in Chicago. So in uh, food uh, desert neighborhoods, um, organic produce is available at uh, very low low cost and, um, and put to great use. So yeah, some of it ends up in our cafe, our garden mm-hmm. cafe, and occasionally supports um, other programs. Well, we're going to be talking with you this half hour about a lot of garden issues this summer and also how to make your garden thrive, as we said in the blog, which is on MikeNovak.net if you go to this week's show. We're talking about the cure for the summertime blues in the garden. And then we're going to have on a little bit later Chris Beiser, who's also a plant care specialist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. So get your questions ready. You can call us 847-475-1590. We'll be talking the first half hour, like I said, about um, our home gardens, uh, more vegetable issues, and then getting into ornamentals and trees and woody plants, and also some of the pests and beneficial insects as well. So what are you seeing at the garden this year? I know you guys had... A ton of water back in July. A ton of water. Uh, seven That's or eight it mildly. inches yeah. of water um, <laughs> there. And uh, we've seen a lot of um, fluctuation in the levels of, of the lake and um, that surround the island, mm-hmm. uh, the fruit and vegetable garden. Which is actually um, the Skokie River, isn't it? Which is actually right. The garden is functioning exactly as it should function, as sort of a detention area, holding area for some of the water that uh, ends up... Um, you know, moving down into the Chicago River. So mm-hmm. it's acting um, as a place um, as it should. And so along the shoreline of Fruit and Vegetable Garden, we've put in this semi-aquatic planting shelf that can tolerate the um, the fluctuation of water. Um, unfortunately, there were two small terraces, well, not so small, but fairly large terraces that um, were submerged for a couple of uh, days. So um and they were not able to withstand the water. Swiss chard so, and, and yeah. other kales out there. And... Yeah, it's been a wet year in the vegetable garden, which means weeds. So it's been a good year for weeds <laughs> and um, a good year for leaf spot diseases and things that are passed through um, water droplets. So uh, we've had a lot of a lot of rain and and a lot of problems. So I can't wait to hear what people are experiencing in their gardens. I hope they call. Right. So it, you know, like you said, it's been it was a cool spring. Uh, things were kind of slow to start, then we got all the water, then it's dry. How do you manage that on a grand scale on 3.5 acres? You know, I think um, uh, using proper cultural techniques is so important. Um, choosing resistant varieties, plants that can withstand some of the problems that the environment throws their way, like too much water causes cracking fruit in tomatoes. Choosing tomatoes that are resistant mm-hmm. to some of those problems um, is really important. So that's the place to start. And then it, using uh, cultural techniques like mulching um, and proper watering techniques and really knowing how um, how and when to water uh, sustainably working with Mother Nature um, because it's either feast or famine. We're either mm-hmm. completely submerged or we're letting things dry out too much. So uh, mitigating the the uh, impacts of water is really important in the vegetable garden, um, babying these vegetable plants. Um, so I think um, it's been a challenging year. You really yeah. have to work with, with Mother Nature. And, and knowing when to give up on a plant, too. And knowing when to give up. And I'm not sure if Mike, uh, he mentioned that he had some tomatoes he was very concerned about. Um, it's nice just to, it's 
it's right to just pull them out of the ground and dispose of them. Don't throw <laughs> them on so your compost sad. pile. It is sad. I'm sorry to say, but um, cut your losses. Yeah, that that is a good point. Which, if you're pulling up a diseased plant, you're not going to want to put that in your compost. You're not going to want to put that in your put it in the trash bin, and um, it'll set you up for for problems if your compost doesn't reach a high enough temperature to really compost some of those um, uh, spores, and uh, you can have a huge problem the next year. So yeah. it's it's wise to just um, throw them away in the garbage in the trash can. That's Lisa Hilgenberg, horticulturalist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And after we come back from the break, we're going to be talking about summer garden issues on the Mike Novak Show, 1590 WCGO. Are you ready to make a positive change in the world around you? One that's easy and creates beauty. Make the switch to native plants, natural communities native plants. Enjoy the elegance of nature, the birds, the pollinators, and yes, even monarch butterflies, without the excessive maintenance and without pesticides. Natives create food for pollinators and birds, offset climate change, cleanse water, reduce floodwaters, and they look great. Natural Communities has more than 200 species of affordable woodland, wetland, and prairie plants, as well as shrubs, trees, and seeds native to the Midwest. And now is the time to get those plants established in your yard for a head start next year. Go to naturalcommunities.net. And if you use the word NOVAK, N-O-W-A-K, at checkout, you'll get 10% off your purchase until October 1st. Don't just get back to nature. Create it in your own backyard. Go to naturalcommunities.net. Hi, this is Ron Calgill from Mighty House. Are you looking for a cool ride that you can plug in so you can flip off the guy at the gas station? The Illinois Solar Energy Association is raffling off a 2017 Tesla Model X, and only 2,500 tickets will be sold. Go to Illinois Solar and click on the link to the Tesla raffle. You can buy one ticket for $100 or four tickets for $300. All the raffle proceeds will fully benefit the Illinois Solar Energy Association, a nonprofit working to advance solar energy development throughout the state of Illinois. The winner will be drawn on December 7, 2017. That's IllinoisSolar.org. Let's face it, sometimes we overdo physical activity. That's when to give Dr. Bonnie Flaster a call. Dr. Flaster is a chiropractor who treats back and neck pain, but addresses foot, knee, shoulder, and wrist pain too, all with gentle, non-force adjustments. And she'll talk to you about your problems and work with you to devise the best treatment strategy. Find health tips at rivernorthwellness.com. Call Dr. Bonnie Flaster at 312-642-7545 and get back to feeling good. Hello, I'm sorry I lost myself. I think I thought you were someone else. Shouldn't talk about the weather. Ah, talking about the weather, definitely. Perfect song. So we are live back in the studio on the Mike Novak Show on a gorgeous Sunday morning. This is Peggy Malecki. Mike has the weekend off, and I'm here with Lisa Hilgenberg of the Chicago Botanic Garden getting ready to talk tomatoes. Lisa, I don't yet have a ripe tomato. What's going on? I know. it's uh, It's been so wet that our soils are just saturated with moisture, and that really shuts down um, the root system. And just we have all kinds of problems with ripening fruit, um, fruit that's unevenly colored, uh, yellow-shouldered fruit. Those are all problems that are related to that um, that sort of um, suffocation of the root system of tomatoes in too wet soils. So I think it's 
Um, you're not alone. It's mm-hmm. going on at the Botanic Garden, too. We have quite a lot of fruit set, um, but just a blush on that first rung of those indeterminate tomato uh, fruits. Yeah, they're just um, sitting there green or maybe, like you said, the slightest blush and nothing's happening. That's true. And, you know, it's it was so gray for so many days in July. And uh, it's just been a very short growing season. So I think if we're patient, um, I think if we're taking care of our plants and making sure to re- remove any diseased foliage and, and uh, mulching those plants, uh, maybe giving mm-hmm. them a little uh, kick of uh, bone meal is what we like to use at flowering time. Uh, and then again, when plants are working hard uh, to fruit, um, uh, you can set yourself up for some, um, you know, sort of jump-starting your tomato mm-hmm. plants. I think that's key. Even just a shovel full of compost, it's sort of counterintuitive that compost would help lighten heavy soils, but it truly does. Um, And so that's something that you can do. Um, We've used earthworm castings. We've made this mix of compost and earthworm castings and bone meal and dressed all of our tomato plants just Mm -hmm. with a shovel full uh, around the the base. Now, Um, would you be digging that in or using a little garden fork or just letting it sit on the surface? Yeah, there's a little hand tool that you can just sort of scratch it and around, mm-hmm. keeping it away from the stem of the tomato. You don't want to affect that or, or yeah. nick that at all. Um, and it acts sort of as a mulch as well. So many tomato problems are <laughs> passed up as we splash the water. As rain splashes the water around tomato plants, though, those uh, fungi and, and things in the soil will splash up and cause all kinds of leaf spots and, and problems. So keeping plants uh, mulched, um, really checking the water carefully, um, maybe giving them a top dress of something to jumpstart them, and then keeping plants disease-free by removing the foliage and the and the problem shoots. Well, can you take too much foliage though off? How much does a tomato plant still need? Well, it needs it needs to have some foliage. You're right mm-hmm. about that. But our plants are so heavy this year with foliage. We've had so much rain. I mean, they're just green as could be. <laughs> they're they're just like little trees. Well, they're not all green. Well, they're they're. Yes, I I did see your the pictures of your <laughs> yeah. of your leaf spot. So so, yeah, so but... what, what we're talking about is there are two photos posted on this week's blog, which you can go see on mikenovak.net and click on this week's show. Uh, one is of one of my tomato plants, and another is coming from a listener. There's there's a couple of differences here. So the one that says, "Does your tomato plant look like this?" I have fruit. I've got a lot of yellow leaves, but they don't necessarily have leaf spot, but a lot of the leaves have then just gone to brown and droopy yeah. and blah. Yeah. You know, I wonder if um, early blight typically starts at the base of the plant. So the lower leaves. This is um, like the mid-third. Begin uh, at the beginning uh, of of early blight. Um, it doesn't look like a leaf spot. Um, I would agree with you there. Um, I would suggest that, again, we're sanitizing our tools, but we're removing any of that foliage. It looks um, like it's been yellowing due to too much water. Um, air circulation is really important in uh, in tomato growing as well. So removing some of that foliage, uh, you asked about how much is okay. Um, I think that you can remove anything that's diseased, certainly. And then it op- opens things up for some air circulation. Uh, tomatoes can become sunburned if we remove too much mm-hmm. foliage. You know, we don't want to take, yeah. uh, you know, the whole top off. But um, we've pruned ours pretty hard, and um, we still have too much foliage. So it's been a um, a vigorous tomato year, but now everybody's just sitting around not wanting to ripe, ripen. So now this this is the the second image up here. It's got a lot of brown leaves with more spots. It would seem. Yeah, and that fruit to me looks like uh, 
it's it's just sort of um, lagging. And my guess is that it's something to do with the uh, just the moisture level in the soil and just that that um, the the plant isn't able to deliver the nutrients that it needs mm-hmm. up to the fruit um, due to that sort of waterlogged nature of the soil. So is there something we can be doing for the soil? Can we be loosening that up or is that just going to affect the roots? I think that you carefully, um, you could loosen up soil um, around the plant um, and then just careful watering techniques, mm-hmm. um, mulching, um, maybe letting things dry out in between in between waterings. Um, and literally we're watering once a week, but Mother Nature has helped us almost every week. Mm-hmm. We've hardly watered the vegetable garden. So it's something that... Um, we need to be very, very careful of, but certainly remove that diseased foliage. And um, uh, I would give that a balanced fertilizer. Um, and again, in my case, because we're growing organically, that has to do a lot to do with compost and earthworm mm-hmm. castings. Um, and then see what happens and hope for the best. Well, and hopefully <laughs> we'll get some some sun. And I think it's just the inability of plants to take up the nutrients that they need. So... We could talk tomatoes for the next three hours, but you said peppers are another problem. Yeah, peppers year. have been a problem for us in the in the garden. Uh, septoria blight, in particular, um, just sort of a concentric circle, um, orange rings on leaves of peppers have been a real problem. Um, and we've coaxed them back sort of to life um, after much of the plant has defoliated and fallen on the ground, and then making sure that we pick up and remove that diseased foliage and then we've, we've fertilized those again, and um, we have a nice uh, amount of new growth, but really um, hardly any flowering, and it's already uh, mid-August almost, yeah. so it's going to be a very late year. Um, we typically don't plant our peppers and tomatoes until the 10th of July, uh, June, mm-hmm. so we're, we're late to begin with, and um, it's a very, very short growing season. So it's, for tomato growers, it quite possibly could be a fantastic September. But for peppers? But for peppers, yeah, we'll we'll see about that. I've got um, six or eight Brazilian peppers that we're growing mm-hmm. in um, um, conjunction with our Brazil in the Garden um, display this year, which is so exciting. It's just um, the plants are so beautiful and unusual, and it's been fun to grow some of those horticultural crops that are related to Brazil. And along with that, we have um, lots of Brazilian church bell peppers and some re- very, very interesting peppers yeah. many people probably haven't seen before. Um, and again, those were started in our greenhouse. So we bring those out into the garden um, when it's nice and warm. And they've done so well. They're in terracotta pots. And so the terracotta has a way of just sort of pulling a lot of that excess mm-hmm. moisture out of uh, and away from the root system, which has caused um, very healthy growth for those peppers. They're very heavily fruited. Um, and peppers are self-pollinating, so it has nothing to do with, um, although it can be helped along by pollinators, <laughs> they can take care of themselves for the most yeah. part. Um, but again, I've, do- I've done hardly anything but stake them. With all the wind and rain, peppers are very brittle plants, so it's important to make sure that they're staked um, and can stand up on their own. And then they're full of fruit, so um, it'll be exciting to see uh, I'm jealous. how they ripen. I I'm know. jealous. Well, I'll my, share. My peppers you... are like... The size of marbles. They're just not, it's like they've set fruit and nothing's happening. The, the vigorous hybrid, um, the AAS winners, um, all American selection plants mm-hmm. are really um, those early to fruit. So choosing those early maturing varieties is very, very important um, when selecting plants. Never before have I 
uh, understood how incredibly important it is to to select the right plant for the right place. And so those resilient varieties that can um, withstand um, the temperature and weather extremes mm-hmm. that we've had um, is is very, very important. Yeah, and what about days? So if you're looking at, you know, the, the, the days on a seed packet, with a lot of the weird weather we've been having, what's going to be more successful? Well, shorter season crops, mm-hmm. we've had so much um, gray weather, and it feels like a very short season. Um, I think for the most part, you know, um, we try to plant something that matures early, mid, and late, so we have something maturing at all times, so the production is consistent across the summer. Um, but the uh, certainly with peppers, where you know they're um, they're um, native to um, South America and to Mexico, yeah. and when we think about the soils there and where they come from, um, you know they're very long season crops that almost perennialize in in those. Uh, areas. And here we've got gray, gray wet Chicago, and we're trying to uh, duplicate those growing yeah. conditions. So it doesn't quite, doesn't quite match. Yeah, that's true. Well, another thing that, we, you know, a lot of gardeners are struggling with right now um, is some of the squash plants. I, my, my neighbors had a lot of squash that gets to be two or three inches long, and then it's just rotting and falling off. Yeah, it's good to remove that fruit right away. And um, I'm sorry to hear that's the case. Some sort of um, end rot, you know, blossom end mm-hmm. rot or something that's um, that's mildew related. It has probably has to do with, you know, being on the ground. Their, their zucchini and squash lay right directly on the ground mm-hmm. unless you're trellising them. But um, we've had a, a huge zucchini year. We've harvested, um, oh, hundreds of pounds of zucchini wow. this year. So we're growing a couple of uh, interesting, um, vigorous hybrids, um, dunja, um, is one of those. Zephyr is another. They're big, shrubby, bushy plants um, that are fairly inhospitable. They're um, they're kind of almost thorny. They're they're not very nice to work in. But the zucchini production has been just amazing. And so those are Johnny Select seed um, varieties. And um, it's it's been a good zucchini year. I think um, mulching or or um, uh, you know, making sure to remove diseased foliage is is very important, and then harvesting all that that fruit that's bad right yeah, away. Getting rid getting, of it. And... Getting rid of it. Um, and a harvest knife is nice nice with zucchini. It's hard to get a pruners around a, a one inch um, stem of a zucchini plant. So take a little serrated knife out there and make a nice clean cut early in the morning, mm-hmm. um, and then keep the watering. Um, at bay. So if you're watering by hand um, with a hose, make sure to, to water around the base of the plant, but keep the, the water off the foliage and off the, the fruit that's ripening. So that could be contributing to some of the problems if, if it's being top watered. Well, yeah. And there are so many um, soil-borne um, fungi and, and <laughs> problems right now. And Chris Beiser is going to be um, yeah. probably full of information for everyone on, on some of those um, specific um, problems. But uh you know, it's hard to overcome that in a yeah. in a wet year, and so that's why uh, crop rotation is very important, and um, just variety selection and and setting yourself up with a with a real range of of crops so that you you can have some success in one thing. When your zucchini fails, maybe your winter squash mm-hmm. um, does well. So, um, so how about you know, like I've I've got. Some holes in the garden now where the lettuce was pulled and some other things were pulled and I didn't necessarily get anything in yet. What do I still have time to plant? 
Oh, there are lots. There's lots of time to plant um, all of our cool season plants. So many things that we planted in the spring could be repeated now. Um, we have about until, let's see, mid-October mm-hmm. um, f- when our first frost happens, about October no, 23rd. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of growing time um, uh, in between now and then. So crops like radish, um, spinach, it's probably even a little early to plant spinach. Um, but to replant lettuce in the garden, uh, to row it up as a cut-and-come-again uh, lettuce crop would be a great a uh, great way to get um, some fall production. Uh, beets and turnips grow very, very well in into the fall, into mm-hmm. the cooling weather. Um, so those would be crops to to plant now. Um, we're, we'll plant a whole fall uh, succession of crops beginning in about um, ten days. So um, we'll be planting well into the fall. Um, and many of those crops are frost hardy, so they can withstand. Um, that first frost. So you should be able to harvest uh, through Thanksgiving and, and mm-hmm. you know, depending on the year. Yeah. My guess is it's going to be warm through the fall. So hopefully we'll have a, a nice amount of production. All the allium um, leeks, onions, uh, some of those shorter leek um, days to maturity varieties are, are great for fall growing. Uh, brassicas, some of the uh, shorter season spring cabbages can be planted now again uh, Caitlin and uh, Formosa and Alocasia. Um, so those are um, great varieties. Um, so there's, there's, you know, if the goal is to eat something from your vegetable garden every day, uh, we need to keep planting yeah. so to make that um, true into the fall. Yeah. I, I actually started um, my peas about two weeks ago. Perfect. And they're they're probably six to eight inches right now. You had an interesting, you mentioned an interesting variety to yes, me. Yes, and I've planted those, so I'm going to let you know how they go. Did the you? Territorial seed has a, a white pea and a purple pea um, along with the typical, you know, and snap peas, but they have 30 days. It said it's a super fast container bush pea. It's, I can't wait to hear how that goes. Do you have any extra seed? Yes, I do. Well, to... did you bring it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I brought my computer and myself and my coffee. <laughs> a thirty day pee. That's yeah, just it's, fantastic. It's it's territorial seed. It's it's kinda interesting. I had to order it because I wasn't sure. You and I had talked about that. How can the plant be producing in thirty days? What a great company and what a lot of growers information within mm-hmm. the territory territorial seed catalog. Um I look forward to trying that thirty day pea. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I've I've I'm you know, my ongoing I've talked about my chipmunk issues, which is huge. Chipmunks it, no, don't get me started on them, but I've, I've kind of I'm trying to outwit them by putting them in pots a little bit lower. I put a very fine mesh hardware cloth that the plants are growing through, and I've tied the ends down so that they can't go underneath it. So I'm and nobody's nipping the tops off. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the chipmunks will not go after the peas. We'll see. We'll see. I'll keep harvest, you posted. Harvest in a timely <laughs> fashion. That's for sure. So we're about to go to the break, but is there anything else people should be doing? Oh, I'm hearing the music. So people should be getting ready to call 847-475-1590. And we will be back after the break with Lisa Hilgenberg and Chris Beiser of the Chicago Botanic Garden here on the Mike Novak Show on WCGO 1590. Time to kill the vampires and phantoms. No garlic or wooden steaks necessary. 
In the Green Diva Minute, you'll learn more and be on your way to living a deeper shade of green. Energy generation or power plants are one of the largest sources of pollution contributing to climate change. 5 to 20% of our home electric bill comes from vampire or phantom energy use. Most of our electronics remain on standby even if they're off. Anything that has a little light on somewhere, like a charger, is still sucking up energy. Cable boxes are among the worst offenders. There are some smart strips that help by allowing you to turn things on and off on a timer. The U.S. Department of Energy offers some tools to help you get to know more about your energy use. I'm Green Diva Meg. Find more useful Green Diva podcasts, videos, and of course, lots of low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green at thegreendivas.com. Have you ever walked into a hair salon and been overwhelmed by the smell of chemicals? Well, that's never going to happen at Organic Roots Eco Salon. They use only the safest, most natural professional hair products available to make sure you get great color results that last and won't harm the environment or you. Their salon products and services are free from ammonia, formaldehyde, and other toxins typically found in hair color perms and keratin smoothing treatments. Organic Roots also offers a complete menu of safe straightening treatments, including the non-toxic Magic Sleek and Cezanne keratin smoothing products that let you shampoo the same day. They even repurpose hair clippings, recycle product containers, and use LED lighting. Now that's green. Walk into 21st Century Hair Care for women and men at Organic Roots Eco Salon, 3417 Dempster in Skokie. Book your appointment at OrganicRootsEcoSalon.com or call 847-423-2653. Health and beauty, you no longer have to sacrifice one for the other. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chop down my vegetables. I love you most of all. My favorite vegetable. Hmm, I'm not sure what that was. That noise, what was that? <laughs> Ben's opening uh, some beverage. No, that wasn't Ben. That was on that was on the music. Well, welcome back to the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki. Mike is out of the office, as it were, this weekend. He'll be back next week. And Lisa Hilgenberg from the Chicago Botanic Gardens is joining us. What is your favorite vegetable, Lisa? Oh, well, that would have to be Brussels sprouts. Ooh, right Ooh. there with you. Are you? Do you mm-hmm. love them? How, love how do you them. how do you prepare them? I like them um, in the oven, just sort of tossed with a little bit of olive oil, some mm-hmm. salt. Very simply prepared. You could cut them in half if they're too big or peel them and, uh, you know, just sort of brown and crispy on the edges. Just delicious. Yeah, I, I tend to cut them in half. I'll do them on top of the stove. Cut them in half, a little bit of olive oil, and you sear them to seal it in. Yeah. And then you kind of flip them around, and in the end you're dressing them with some some salt and maybe some bread crumb, mm-hmm. panko breadcrumbs and a little bit of Parmesan. Simple and delicious. Yeah. I'd like to come over for Thanksgiving. Are you serving that? <laughs> no. No, but we'll have lunch one day. Okay, let's have lunch. <laughs> so let's bring on Chris Beiser from the Chicago Botanic Garden. He is a specialist in plant health care and is responsible for the diagnosis and management of pests and diseases for trees, shrubs, and perennials in their ornamental plant collection. He's also helping the plant health care department transition to a digital record system, developing an emerald ash borer management plant, and working on the tree risk assessment inventory. Chris, thank you so much for coming into the show this morning. How do you have time to do anything? That's always the question of the day, isn't it? <laughs> um, there's never enough time in the day to really get to everything. But uh, 
it's all about prioritizing. And uh, actually, a lot of my work can be done uh, in the winter as well, especially with the risk assessment and mm-hmm. uh, looking at some of our older specimens with the trees and shrubs, um, being able to decide if they're working in the garden, working in their site or not. And we can reevaluate those a lot during the winter. But uh, right around this time of the year is kind of like it's the, the just after the peak of how crazy the growing season can get. And uh, just starting to wind down, but it's our last two raw in the garden. So. Yeah. So what are you seeing with emerald ash borer this year? Well, for the most part, actually, our emerald ash borer program is on the, on the back side as far as uh, our management and our preparation for emerald ash borer moving into the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started a, about 2012, we started with this program. Um, and we started within the, the range of about 400 ash trees. We're down to about 70 at this point. Ooh. Um, and it's all been about careful management and planned removal, um, planned removal and, uh, and selection of the ones we want to essentially create a Noah's Ark for and hold on to. Um, so at this point, uh, with our emerald ash borer, we're treating all the ones that we have in the garden still, um, with a systemic insecticide. So that keeps it out of the environment, keeps it into the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not a, uh, they're mostly a wind pollinated tree, so we don't have to worry too much about uh, pollinating insects with those. Um, and then every year we just do a review and we try to decide is what we're doing to them working? Is it not? Do we need to adjust? Do we need to prune if it's in a high traffic area? Is it a safety concern? Um, we're going to be going through it pretty much every year in the winter and we look at the structural problems that are associated with those as well as any other trees in the garden. What about in general in the area? Is it still increasing? Has it kind of stabilized? Does so many trees have been removed? You know, I honestly can't drive anywhere in Chicago and not see an ash tree that is in terrible shape. Um, I think for the most part, it's peaked in, in Chicago. I think we're on the backside again mm-hmm. with dealing with it. Um, I think at this point, if you have an ash tree, you know about emerald ash borer, uh, and you're either treating that tree or you're accepting that eventually it's going to need to be replaced. Um, some cities have taken that on really aggressively, um, and you can't find a single ash tree in their city perimeter that isn't treated or removed. Um, and other cities have kind of tried to see, wait, done the wait and see program yeah. of, you know, what's what's really going to happen and when things, you know, when the cards are all played, how is it going to look? Um, but I think for the most part, we've peaked, um, and it's something that's never going to go away. It's just something that we have to manage at this point. It seems like those those trees that are stressed and dead um, and uh, coupled with all of the flooding uh, rains that we've had in July, Chris, would be a huge issue, um, just making sure that they're removed and uh, making sure we're, we're heading back some of those dead branches and removing big trees that could be a danger. Yeah, you know, I've seen a, with the rains here, we have seen growth on some of these trees, uh, not just ash trees, but pretty much any large tree, just much much more growth than we we are used to. Um, And that can be good if you have a tree that's been stressed and has been needing to put on growth. But you have to remember, you know, faster growth tends to be weaker growth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you you do have to really keep an eye on some of these trees that I've seen trees putting on two, three feet of growth so so far this year. Wow. Um, And so we just have to keep an eye on those. Sometimes you get things like overextending branches that you have to worry about too much weight being on one limb. Uh, becoming a structural issue, uh, as well as we are having some issues now where it will get a heavy rain and then a heavy windstorm, and the weight of the leaf 
being soaking wet with that rain, getting caught in the wind can just tear entire limbs right off the tree. Right. Um, so it is, it is big to just, you know, every once in a while, just do a quick run through your yard and, and see how your trees are looking. Are they, you know, have you noticed that some are, you know, leaning more than they should? Have you noticed that some might be struggling? And then uh, getting an expert out there if you think that it needs to be that. Yeah, the instability of disease trees has got to be an issue um, for many home home owners. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know the hard thing with trees too is they generally don't show significant stress or decline until years after the problem has shown up. Right, um, they can they can live on kind of their internal reserve of food for at least a year, if not longer, depending on the size. So a lot of times when you finally see that really strong stress coming on. Uh, with lost limbs and stuff like that, it's almost too far gone to do anything about. Right, right. So what what are you seeing happening with oaks this year? I've noticed that a lot of oaks seem to be pretty stressed. You know, I've seen a lot of leaf, uh, leaf scorch with mm-hmm. oak trees this year. Um, that's essentially the, the plant is evaporating more water than it can keep up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so on some of those early hot weeks that we had in the summer, um, you're just getting that growth that's essentially drying out at the tips. Most of that is superficial, um, and you tend to see that later in the season as well as you get some of these accumulating stresses that on their own you probably wouldn't notice, but four or five things come along, and they're small, but then together they make quite a, quite a visual difference on your tree canopy. Um, for the most part with oaks, though, I haven't seen too many problems out there. Um, we have had a few that we've lost this year to the, to the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and I've seen a, quite a bit of that leaf scorch again, but, um, as far as things like oak wilt, I haven't seen too much of that yet this year. Um, that's a pretty serious disease and a couple of the other, uh, diseases that are spread, uh, essentially the, it's a fungi vector by insects. There's a few of those out there that I haven't seen too much yet of, at least on the North shore side. Okay. So go ahead, Lisa. Well, I was going to just ask more about the flood impacts then and the, the, analysis that you've had to do on some of the, some of the trees that are along the shoreline of our many islands at the Botanic Garden. Um, uh, yeah. What is going to survive and what is not going to survive? And and we won't know about that for several years, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, with the floods receding, uh, you can pretty quickly see what perennials of some of the shrubs that aren't going to make it pretty quickly. Um, in the last few weeks, we've seen the decline of a lot of the turf around the, the edges of the, mm-hmm. the flood area. Um, but we've had several, we had several trees that were almost completely submerged for upwards of five days. Uh, several, several of our Scots pines on the Japanese islands, which are essentially priceless because of the way, the number of years it takes to establish that style of pruning. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were submerged for upwards of a week. Wow. And we really won't know the full effect of that until, you know, probably next season, maybe even two years down the line, mm-hmm. we may see one or two that just suddenly crash and we're scrambling trying to figure out what's going on and they can be tied back to events like this. I'm sure a lot of homeowners have the same problem though because we've had you know Lake County, McHenry County standing water in people's yards for for days or weeks. What sort of things should they be looking for later this season, next season? Well I think you know it really depends on your tree uh, species that you're dealing with. A lot of people that live in those floodplain areas um I'm hoping our planting trees that are a little bit more resilient to strong floods like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really interesting information out there. If you look up, you know, resilience of trees to flooding, they've done tests to see essentially how long a tree can survive submerged underwater. Um, 
And, you know, if you, if you, if it's long enough, you can see immediate drastic effects, but again, you really don't know until a year or two years right. down the road. Right. I think it's something that if someone's worried about, just keep an eye on that tree. Make sure you're just giving it the, you know, the love that it needs. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing any heavy fertilizing at this point in the year. You don't want to push too much succulent growth this late in the season because uh, it won't have a chance to harden off before the winter. But just, you know, making sure you're, you're dealing with what may be compacted soils, poorly drained soils in those areas. Uh, maybe get some vertical mulching going on in that. Where That's essentially where they uh, take a, a pneumatic air tube and push air into the soil in a big three-foot stretch going down in the soil and then fill that air aerated spot with mulch. And that just helps kind of break up the root zone a little bit, get some better air in there, put some better drainage. And that's really what a flood does, right? It decreases the oxygen oxygen level in the soil, which sort of starves the roots or um, suffocates them. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people forget sometimes that, you know, just because of the root systems on the ground does not mean that it, it's sitting there just chugging along with water. It actually breathes. It does require oxygen. Um, so that's where you get into issues with, you know, the heavy water that we've had and the, the heavy soils that Chicago is known for with its heavy clay, mm-hmm. um, having issues of the plant literally suffocating from the roots. Right. That's Chris Beiser on the phone with us from the Chicago Botanic Gardens. He is a plant care specialist. Uh, we've been talking about trees and floods and, and the weather. What are we seeing happening um, on some of the ornamentals? You know, I, we've, we've been keeping an eye on a lot of the ornamentals. Like I said, we've got a lot of growth in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've also got a lot of fungal problems this year. I think that's due to the wet spring as well as the wet summer that we've had so mm-hmm. far. Just a lot of fungal leaf spots that have been showing up. I heard you guys discussing septoria leaf spot earlier on the program. Um, and that's definitely been a concern. We've got a lot of apple scab that's showing up this season. Um, you know, different crab apple cultivars have different levels of resistance, and we're pretty much seeing it across the board on everything uh, this year to varying degrees, but some trees are completely defoliated at this point. Well, Chris, um, then, we're, we're going to go yeah. to the break real quick. When you come back, let's talk about what we can do, if anything, about some of the fungal situations, and then hopefully also Absolutely. talk a little bit about some of our insects that we're running into right now. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki on 1590 WCGO. Now is the time to get your lawn in shape. That's right. Late summer, early fall is the time to make your lawn beautiful and sustainable. Talk to Logic Lawn Care, a company that uses a holistic approach. It's not just about putting down harmful products. It's about process. Logic also works with schools, park districts, and municipalities across Chicagoland to manage large turf areas. Get a free estimate. Go to LogicLawnCare.com or call 847-421-6500. DNR Services Unlimited has been serving the north and northwest suburbs since 1992. They can take care of those little problems that never get done. They perform complete bathroom, basement, and kitchen remodels. And if you're looking for a complete home makeover, they can handle that too. Visit their website at RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. That's RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Join Crate Free Illinois on Friday, August 25th for a discussion about factory farms at Nana Organic Restaurant in the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. 
Mike Novak will moderate a panel about the threat of factory farms in Illinois. Noted sustainability experts will be there, including Mark Ayers, Illinois Director for the Humane Society, which is launching its Illinois Agriculture Advisory Council. That's August 25th at NANA, 3267 South Halstead Street in Chicago. It starts at noon and it's free. Chicagoans use your blue carts to recycle. Bottles, flattened boxes, jugs with the lids on, tin and aluminum cans, juice cartons, and mail. No plastic bags, including store bags, no greasy pizza boxes, styrofoam, disposable coffee cups, light bulbs, napkins, electronics, or shredded paper. Put your items loose in the blue cart and not in a plastic bag. Visit RecycleByCity.com Chicago and let's make Chicago beautiful and green. You're waking us up here, Ben. I'm going to say. Ariana's dancing in the corner. She and was I like, am. what? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show. We're in the home stretch here, and we're live with Lisa Hilgenberg of the Chicago Botanic Garden and Chris Beisner on the phone. And before we went to break, we were just starting to talk about fungal problems and powdery mildew. And is there anything a home gardener should be doing or just kind of letting it set? You know, I think a lot of these fungal problems, especially late in the season, there's not too much that can be done about them. Um, it's more about prevention with fungal problems than, uh, than fixing the problem once it's there. Uh, there are some organic fungicides out there for preventatives for the following year. Uh, you can get some copper fungicides out there that uh, we actually use on the fruit and veg garden for our apple uh, orchard. But, you know, also increasing air circulation as a big part of reducing fungal spoilation, as well as reducing overhead watering. I see a lot of people that get out there in the morning and they just are soaking all the foliage down. And that's just a great way to promote the spread of powdery mildew, uh, which has exploded in the last couple of weeks. Almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. I, I have it on natives and prairie plants. Yes, we've been seeing it on just about everything. And Powdery mildew is one of those diseases that really doesn't discriminate against uh, host targets. It kind of just goes where it pleases and uh, can bloom in literally a matter of 12 to 24 hours. Uh, so it is, it's good to keep on top of, again, that watering, good watering mm-hmm. protocol, and then uh, Remove. pruning out some of those really badly infected leaves can help a lot. Yeah, too. and again, don't put it in the compost pile. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's... One of the other things that's happening right now as we're transitioning into back to school and end of summer and mid-August is I'm starting to see yellow jackets out there. And, you know, everyone's immediately running for the bug spray, it seems. Um, But not necessarily so. And and you were telling me uh, as we were prepping for the show that yellow jackets are actually very beneficial insects. They are. Um, Now, there's there's yellow jackets and hornets, which Mm -hmm. are essentially your, like, Winnie, they make your like Winnie the Pooh style uh, beehives, the big oval ones you see hanging out of the trees, um, as well as they also make those underground. But then there's also paper wasps, and those mm-hmm. are the ones everybody sees in our spring, the ones hanging under the awnings on their on their uh, houses that make those nice little umbrella-shaped uh, open cones. Uh, the thing about those is, you know, all of these different insects, they are pollinators, so we do need to remember that. They do feed on nectar, so they are going plant from flower to flower. Um, but also, especially in the spring, they act as a beneficial insect because they do feed on insects, mm-hmm. uh, especially caterpillars that are feeding on foliage. Uh, some of your uh, 
vegetable gardens that are just getting started. So especially in the spring and summer, we try to not control for these, and they're not really out in numbers that are noticeable at that point either. Um, later in the season, obviously, we've got you know huge colonies that have started to kind of uh, peak essentially in their populations, and that's when people start to notice them. They go out for that last summer picnic, and they're just everywhere. Um, the, the key thing about them is to just remember that they generally don't want to sting you unless you agitate them or you approach their nest. Um, so if you ignore them, they will go away. But also that they, they attract, they're attracted to eating that food, especially late in the season, for kind of like their last meal, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, just to keep them chugging along until the first frost. So they are, uh, as far as insects are concerned, a little bit more intelligent than other insects. They can actually remember where they've been. Hmm. Um, so a big part of preventing wasps from being an issue is to make sure you're not leaving your food out. Uh, make sure that you have a garbage can that um, is away from where you would normally be hanging out. I see a lot of people leave them on their patios uh, during parties, and you should have those at least covered, if not somewhere else. Because as soon as a wasp finds that spot, it will continue to return there until essentially the source is removed. I didn't know that. Such great information. So Yeah, yeah they're they're kind of interesting. Yeah. And and if you've got a wasp that is a wasp, if you have many wasps that are building a nest, say under your gutters or mm -hmm. off the garage or you find an underground, is there any sort of control for that? You know, I yeah. have a huge one in my front uh, yard in a tree that's mm -hmm. just huge, but it's because the ingress is facing the street. Yeah. I haven't done anything about it. And yeah, I, I mean, you don't typically want to destroy don't picnic it. in yeah. the front. Yard. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, I, it is, they are a safety concern. They will sting, you know, especially little kids that are running around and don't understand. Yeah, a lot of people are very allergic to them. Yep. Um, there are sprays out there, uh, both synthetic and organic. Uh, we tend to, you know, spray towards the organic, which mm -hmm. is essentially just a, uh, they use a insecticidal soap um, that will more or less suffocate them. So it's a pretty quick knockdown. And then it's followed up with a pyrethrin, which is actually an insecticide made from ground up chrysanthemum. So that is essentially in that same familiar spray bottle we've all seen that shoots a stream 20 feet away. Yeah. Um, they do have those out there, um, and it's worth looking for if you're in, like, Home Depot or a, a store. Chris, though, is there any way to deter them, deter them from yes. building the nest, though? Definitely. Um, actually, I've, there's been some research. A lot of different mint oils are kind of a repellent or a deterrent for them. Um, so if you really want to get aggressive about deterring them from even starting a nest, uh, spraying down those areas you know that they like to build with like a peppermint oil works mm -hmm. really well. Um, and I've also heard that planting some of these different mint plants can kind of deter them from being in the area that you're in. Yeah, because they're um, beneficial and we don't really want to be destroying them, but if we have right, some ways of right. deterring them. Right. Uh, and interestingly enough, I did see thyme citronella on that list, which I believe hmm. is also a good repellent for mosquitoes. So you get the kind of double whammy on there. Marigolds, then planting marigolds yeah. underneath here. Yeah, and they timing's imp timing's important for spraying. If you are going to spray your uh, uh, wasp nest, uh, yeah, yeah. If you're if you are looking to actually get rid of a nest for safety reasons, um, trying it in the morning or at dusk is usually the best time. Uh, we don't like doing it at night because you can't see anything. But during those early and late hours, uh, they actually can't fly when it's too cold out. 
so they tend to be very inactive during those times. Mm -hmm. uh, and they always they tend to also come back to the nest later in the day. And it seems like they build their nests in the same place year after year yeah, after year. Yeah, that you could it's, deter them easily. Yeah, that that's way. a great great advice about yeah. the peppermint yeah. oil. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and like you said, don't leave the food out, don't leave the garbage uncovered, the things that are going to attract them. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, great, Chris. We, we're we're kind of running out of time here, but if you've got any more suggestions, and Lisa as well, of here's some key things we should be doing these last couple of weeks of August. We've got about a minute here. All right. I would just say, you know, a lot of things right now have what we call late summer stress. Like I mentioned before, just that accumulation of otherwise minor problems that may look, you could plant look ragged by this time of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and my advice is don't fret. Uh, don't run out, you know, and start researching the hundreds of different things you can do for it. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to see how it performs the rest of the year and then see how it comes out in spring uh, and kind of come up with a prevention plan for the following year as opposed to a reactionary for the fall. It's great advice. Cut something back, get rid of the diseased foliage, mm -hmm. um, cut it back to something that you can live with, and, and it may push a little bit of new growth here in our hopefully nice warm fall. And uh, that's great advice, Chris. Wait till yeah. spring. Yeah. Yeah. A low impact There's plenty approach. of other things to be doing now. <laughs> that is true. And how about in our vegetable gardens? I think um, removing diseased foliage, um, uh, give things a dressing of, of fertilizer or an organic uh, compost, and then um, just keeping things weeded out, um, prune back some of the heavily foliaged plants, um, and then enjoy the harvest. Um, enjoy and revel in your successes, and don't sweat the things that didn't work. Yep, and if all else fails, go to the farmer's market. <laughs> well, we have come to the end of another Mike Novak show. I want to thank our guests, Lisa Hilgenberg here in the studio, Chris Beiser of the Chicago Botanic Gardens on the phone, Michelle Hickey of the Resiliency Institute in Naperville. Ariana, thank you for being in the studio. Thanks to Ben, and thanks to Mike Novak. So until next Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, go green or go home. Go home. Go home. <laughs> Stadler? Oh, uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.